0: If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to the book of Philippians, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And of course, you know it, it wouldn't be me if we didn't do a quick review as you're flipping. So of course, uh, Philippians 1.21, this, this verse that is just driving us, that helps us to remember the focus of this letter. Paul writes to the church and tells them, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so we're focusing on the to live part of of this and what it means to walk this Christian life in a faithful way, knowing that if we walk faithfully, and, and even if we walk a little unfaithful sometimes, but faithful most of the time, and we just walk with Christ, that ultimately when we know Him, even death is not a deterrent, that death in fact is gain for us. So they can threaten us, they can shut try and shut us down, they can imprison us, they can put us in chains. But the truth is, living for Christ is always worthwhile, because death, when you are in Him, brings nothing but gain. And Paul challenged the Philippian church. He said to them, just one thing, as people who are already citizens of heaven, that place you're going to go for gain when you die, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we've seen him challenge the Philippian church and us to living lives of self-sacrifice. Living lives of unity, living lives of holiness, and turning our every choice over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so by the time we get to chapter 3, he's already given us so much to ponder, and now he's going to give us a little bit more. So if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them up to Philippians chapter 3, and we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. And you might go just three verses and I'm going to go, oh yeah, in fact, we're only going to cover two of the three today because I wanted to get you out before three o'clock this afternoon. So Philippians chapter three, verses one through three. And here is what the apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi and writes to us in this passage. He says this, in addition, my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh." So Paul is, after all of this this great teaching, he reminds the Philippian church and us of just a couple of things. First he says this in verse 1 in the very beginning. In addition to these lives lived worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation you find in Him, I want to tell you, rejoice in the Lord. Now, this is not some sort of trite thing. This isn't a command or an, uh, 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 an offering to always find a way to be happy. Anybody known Christians that were like that? That they always pretend like everything is okay. Like not, and not just okay, but like peachy keen. You know, like, oh, praise God, hallelujah. They just walk around in a big fake smile and the, everything's all right. And inside, they are slowly dying. And maybe you've been that kind of a Christian. Maybe you have been the faker. And, and Paul is not calling us to a fake life of faux happiness, of, of false smiles, of, of, of lies about what's actually going on in our hearts and minds. Instead, he is encouraging the church in Philippi and all of us to rejoice in the Lord. And to rejoice in the Lord is not to sit around and be like, everything's great, hallelujah, praise God. But it is instead to understand that even in the darkest of times, we still have riches beyond measure as those who are in Christ Jesus. That even when life is terrible, we can always find things to be thankful for And to actually be lifted up by I mean just this very first statement This very first understanding for, for me to live is Christ And to die is gain If they torture me today It's for Jesus And if I die ultimately It only gets better from here Isn't that worth rejoicing in? Even if today is bleak and black and trouble, to realize that eventually this will end, and even if death, what our culture looks at as as the absolute worst outcome, even if that comes, we still only have better on the way. I used to work with an older gentleman. And uh, he, he actually was, was like my accountability guy in the denomination I was working in. He'd come once a month and he'd take me out to lunch. And he loved to take me to places with big greasy burgers and onion rings. Now, I would, I'd like to say that that wasn't because I enjoyed that. But that would be a lie. The truth is, that's really what I enjoyed. And so I was thankful when he'd take me places with big greasy burgers and onion rings. And sometimes he'd get me a milkshake too. And it was like he was begging me to gain 30 pounds. You know, and and just, just, he wanted to send me to Jesus sooner. Or maybe he just wanted my job. I don't know. But, but so as a pastor though, he, he would encourage me after we had overeaten on big greasy burgers and onion rings and we're sipping on our milkshakes shakes, he'd just settle in and we'd start talking and, and invariably at some point in the conversation, he'd pause and just go like, man, all of this and then heaven when we die. And, and he was just in, in, a, in a pause, he's, he was in his mid-60s at the time, he's in his 70s now, and he would just be rejoicing in the fact that today we had a great big greasy cheeseburger and onion rings and a milkshake, and maybe this is going to be what takes us to Jesus. But eventually, all of this, the good and the bad, and then when we die, Jesus. What else could we possibly ask for? When we get this kind of perspective as Christians, when we understand that today, when I live, whether it's good or it's terrible, it's for the sake of Jesus. And when I die, it's all, not just good, but better. When we come into the presence of God for eternity, whether it's heaven or the new heaven and the new earth, according to, to scriptures, we are going to be completed, we are going to be fulfilled. And this lifestyle practice of learning to look ahead and rejoice in what's coming, to look at what is, and rejoice in what we've already been given, to look back and just rejoice in what God has done in our lives, that practice will be fulfilled in every moment. Every moment will be pure bliss in eternity. I look forward to working hard for the sake of my king and being completely satisfied in eternity. I look forward to this gain, and so should you. So this command to rejoice in the Lord... Paul's adding it to these commands to walk in faithfulness, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. But this is so much of a daily practice of looking around and going, all of this and Jesus when I die. All of this. The good, the bad, the stuff that I'm a little indifferent to, but all of it is for me. And then I get to be in God's presence when I enter eternity. What? More can we ask for? Now, later on in this letter, Paul's actually going to say, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, Rejoice, because he knows that we're dense. Because he knows that this ability to rejoice in the Lord is not one that comes easily or naturally. Especially for those of us who are pessimists. For those of us who are covetous. uh, For for those of us who are longing for, for perfection in this world. This ability to rejoice in the Lord is not something that comes easily. But it is critical for our life as believers. Why are you always downtrodden? Why are you always struggling? Why are you always finding the bleak? Because you have not developed this practice of rejoicing in the Lord. And it's not about walking around with a stupid cheesy grin and saying christian things. It is about no matter how bleak the situation and how terrible you feel, you still pause in the moment and just say, thanks, Lord. I had a cheeseburger a week ago. Actually, I had a cheeseburger yesterday. It had hatch green chilies on it. Oh, it was so good. It was so good, and it was anyway. uh, We're here to extol the goods of Jesus, not the goods of that cheeseburger. But but to, to look back, even if today is bleak and terrible, I had a cheeseburger yesterday, and there's a cheeseburger maybe tomorrow. Who knows? But it's all something worth rejoicing in. The sun rose. My heart is beating. I'm breathing. I feel okay. I'm a little twitchy, too much caffeine probably, but still, so much to rejoice in. Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul is encouraging us, Christ himself is encouraging us, develop the practice of rejoicing. In other words, being thankful for and allowing it to lift your spirits. Rejoicing in the things that the Lord has done in your life. And then rejoice in what is to come. If you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know what's so cool? For you to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I am so looking forward to being dead. I am not looking forward to dying, right? That process scares me. But the fact of death and being in God's presence, how cool. And it gives us this power to be able to say, I am. Rejoice. Don't worry, Shelly. I'm not like, you know, I don't have plans or anything. She just looks scared over there. What's he doing this afternoon? Here's what Nehemiah says to the people of God. Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do not grieve. Now, the thing is, is life was bleak for them. They had enemies all around them. They were struggling, but it was a day of celebration. It was a day to feast. It was a day to have all of the good things that God had given. And then don't grieve about what is happening, what has happened, what might happen, but instead today find strength in the joy of the Lord, in rejoicing in what is And what is to come. Because you have hope beyond compare in Christ Jesus. Now, I would say if you're sitting there and you say, I I don't know that I'm a Christian. I don't know what this would take. I would love to know that rejoicing and that joy. It is as simple, Scripture tells us, as confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. Romans 10.9 and it is, is those simple acts of looking at Jesus Christ and all that He did on the cross and saying, I believe that that applies to me, that I am a sinner who has been separated by my poor choices and my rebellion against God, but God loved me so much that He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, who died on the cross to, to take the punishment for my sin, to reconcile me to God. And then... He was buried and rose again on the third day. I believe that to be true. And I believe that what He said about Himself and about me is true. And I have turned my life over to Him as King and God of creation. Then you too can know the joy that comes from being in the Lord. And the rejoicing that's possible when your future becomes sure even if your today is uncertain. Rejoice In the Lord, because it is our strength. The second half of verse one. Paul writes this. He says, "To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and is a safeguard for you." Now, what's interesting about this verse is we're not, or this this uh, part of the verse is we're not sure if it's referring back to rejoicing in the Lord or referring forward to what he wants to talk about, which is coming in verse two. So it it's a we're not certain what he's talking about again. Is it rejoicing or is it a warning that's coming about false teachers? But it really doesn't matter what it is he's talking about, whether it's the rejoicing or the false teacher's teaching that's coming. He really is saying to all of us, to write to you again about this is no trouble for me. In other words, it's really easy to tell you the truth because I love telling you the truth. And here's the truth. Whether it's rejoicing or watch out for false teachers, it doesn't matter. But he also says to hear the truth to hear good teaching about God's word is a safeguard for you. It's a safeguard for you. The word faith, uh, safeguard there, it means a, a bulwark or a wall to protect you from dangers. Uh, it, it's a picture of being in a castle, really, and having a, a thick castle wall between you and the enemy. And, and you need that to protect you from the enemy's arrows. You need that to protect you. From the enemy's deceptions and destructive desires for you. And so Paul is telling the church in Philippi that, listen, it's really easy to teach you again and again and again if that's what's necessary. Because as I do so and you hear the truth of God's word, it will become a castle for you to live in. It will become a safeguard for you. A bulwark, a thick wall that will protect you from the attacks of the enemy. And so it's it's, it's just this clear statement that faithful Bible teaching and discipleship can build protections into our spiritual lives. Why have I, like nearly every Sunday for the last few weeks, said, come to Sunday Bible School, come get connected, come learn, come grow. Because faithful Bible teaching and connecting with others and being discipled by other believers who are in different stages of their spiritual walk will protect you from the untruth that is all around us. It will begin to protect you from the attacks of the enemy. And when he, you know, makes life difficult this morning because it's too cold and the car didn't want to start right and the kids were slow and the husband and or, not husband and or, but husband or wife was slow, you should not have an and or in there. That would be too many people in that relationship. Um, But... And so, uh, you know, when when things didn't go right this morning and the enemy is trying to attack you, faithful Bible teaching, understanding the truth of God's Word, will build a, a castle for you to live in and say it doesn't matter what the attacks are. I know the truth and I know where I need to be and how I need to live. And who is my hope? And my hope is not anyone out there or a politician or the car starting or the house being warm or the furnace working or cheeseburgers but my hope is christ jesus and the truth of his word and so paul is is telling the philippian church i'm going to teach you again and again because i want you to live in a castle of sound teaching and i want it to be a place you will always retreat to in order to keep your faith strong and your hope in christ alone some really sad things can pop up when you start looking at surveys of Christians. A majority of Christians believe that Jesus was just a good teacher in the United States. That's, that's, that's one of the major beliefs. He was just a good teacher. Wasn't necessarily deity. A majority of Christians think that, that Jesus' death on the cross was just to show us a good example the Ligonier State of Religion Survey for 2020, if you were to go and find that and read it, Ligonier State of Religion, it will break your heart to see some of the things that people who call themselves evangelical Christians believe. And why do they believe such lies? And why do they give in to such attacks? Because instead of listening to the truth over and over again and allowing it to become a safeguard, a bulwark, a castle for them to retreat into, they neglect good teaching. They neglect discipleship that holds them accountable. And so their faith is continually wrecked with untruth and lies. Are you struggling to rejoice in the Lord? It could be because you don't know the right things about Him. You think He was just a good guy who came to teach you nice things instead of understanding He's the God of creation who came and put on flesh in order to show His love for you And that He longs to redeem you. False doctrine will destroy us. But good teaching and good sound biblical doctrine will become a castle in which we can live spiritually. And so if you feel naked and you feel afraid and you feel like you don't understand, come, learn, grow. Let someone tell you again and again the truths of God's Word to begin to build this safeguard into your life, this castle of truth for you to reside in. Now, we look at what Paul is going to tell us, and we understand he's seeking to build a castle for us to live in because he says this in verse two. Three different times he says, Watch out. And he says, Watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, in English, we might read this and think he's talking about three different groups of people, but that's not the case. He's actually talking about one group of false teachers who have come in to the Galatian church previously, who he sees kind of on the fringes of the Philippian church, and he's hoping to cut off their influence before it increases. And he says three times, watch out. Watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Most of us, if we were to write this sentence in English, in good English, we'd want to kind of shorten it up a little bit. We'd say, watch out for the dogs, for the evil workers, and for those who mutilate the flesh. We'd help us to understand this is all connected. But Paul wants us to understand that this warning is so dire that he tells us to watch out three different times. Watch out! Watch out! Watch out. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon with a child, you know what this is like. You have to repeat. Watch out. Don't run to the edge. Watch out. You're going to die. Watch out. The squirrels will bite you. Watch out. And you just, you're on edge. I think Paul has that same concern. He is so concerned for the Philippian church and for us. He doesn't just say watch out once, but he says it three different times to help us understand that we should be watching out. We should have our eyes opened. That as Christians, we don't get to just walk around this world blind to doctrine and teachings. What's interesting is one time as a youth pastor, I would never do this now, but as a youth pastor, I did a whole teaching series on Spongebob. And we would watch a Spongebob episode... We would watch a Spongebob episode, and then we would go through and discuss the spiritual truths in each of the episodes that we watched. Now you, you may be looking at me and going, what were you smoking as a youth pastor? And I will tell you, nothing, nothing at all. I was high on pizza and energy drinks, but that's it. That's as far as it went. But we would watch Spongebob and then discuss the spiritual truths that we could discern in every episode. And do you know what? There's some really deep teaching in some of the episodes of Spongebob. I mean, it would just blow your mind. And the thing is, there are spiritual things being taught to you and me in nearly everything we consume. Nearly everything we consume as entertainment has hidden within it some sort of spiritual truth. Sometimes good, but oftentimes the false truths and the false teachings of the world. Um, I'm a Star Trek fan. I like Star Trek. It's still not as good as Star Wars, but still, I mean, it's good. Uh, We can fight later. and and so I, I I've always w- liked watching new you know new stuff new iterations. But I'm watching the new newest versions of Star Trek on uh, the streaming service that it's on, and just I'm like this isn't Star Trek. I mean, Star Trek was bad. It was like political in, in from the very beginning, right? We we all know that. I mean, it was political from the very beginning, but now. It's like you've got to turn your brain off and just watch things move if you want to enjoy the episode. Because as soon as you listen to what they're saying and how they're living, you're like, this is lie. This is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Oh, look, a new lie straight from the pit of hell. Oh, look, a new lie to distort truth. The things that we enjoy are teaching us spiritual truths. The things our kids are watching and listening to are teaching them spiritual truths. That TikToker, that guy who is wearing eyeshadow and has weird piercings and calls himself they, them, or clown self, he's teaching your children a spiritual truth that I get to be whoever I want to be, that there are no definitions in life, that there's no one who gets to rule me, that sexuality is fluid, that gender is a construct, and I get to choose. Brothers and sisters, watch out! Watch out! Watch out! Now, Paul's talking about a very specific group of false teachers. But you and I, we should keep our eyes open. Now, listen, we don't want to condemn people. We are not judge and jury, but we need to speak truth. And especially, we need to be protecting our children and our own hearts and minds. Watch out! Watch out. Watch out. What are we supposed to be watching out for? Paul says, watch out for the dogs. We have a little dog that comes and pees on all the front yard bushes, and we have a big dog that comes and pees on all the backyard bushes. Those are not the dogs he's telling us to watch out for. If you were to be taking notes, Paul is not telling us to watch out for little cuddly dogs. He is not telling us to watch out for pets. He is telling us to watch out for a certain type of person we'll talk about that more here in a moment these very same people he calls dogs he says they are evil workers they're not some sort of you know well-intentioned but you know they're 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 doing the best they know how no they are working evil and then he calls them those who mutilate the flesh they are people specifically in this context christians who think that you have to follow jewish law In order to be saved, Jewish sacrifices, the practice of circumcision, and Paul is telling the Philippian church, watch out for these false teachers. So, first, let's look at the dogs. When he says that they are the dogs, understand the picture of dogs that Paul would have had in his mind. He's not talking about a little fluffy thing that likes to climb into your lap and cuddle. He's not talking about a watchdog that keeps the door. He is talking about the dogs of his day. And especially the dogs in Jewish culture. They were essentially wild animals that roamed the street. They ate garbage. They were known for attacking people. And, and for Jews, dogs were completely unclean. You were not allowed to have a dog as a Jew. Which is why if you've watched The Chosen and you, you watch Matthew walking around with his dog, It's a big deal. He's a tax collector and he's he's living with an unclean animal. Now, that's made up. It's not in Scripture, but it adds to the character, right? But to the Jewish people, literally, dogs were unclean. In other words, you wouldn't come near a dog. You wouldn't let a dog in your home. You wouldn't feed the dog. Dogs are unacceptable. And it's also what the Jewish people would have called a Gentile. So, Who are the Gentiles? Well, you and I. Everybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. Now, if you have Jewish heritage, cool. But me, I'm flat out Gentile. Most of us, we're full in on the Gentile thing. And if a Jewish person from the first century walked in and looked at us, the first thing they would call us is just dirty dogs. Unclean animals. Not worthy of respect. But Paul takes this and he flips it around. And these people that he calls dogs, these ones who are roaming the street looking for those to devour, looking, looking to take captive other believers, they were Jewish Christians. So Christians who had started off as Jews, saved by the work of Jesus Christ, believed that he was Messiah, but as they went out into culture, they started teaching that Gentiles had to be Jews first before they could become believers, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're familiar with the standards for the New, there were a few things you had to do to convert to Judaism. And the, the conversion process was most difficult for men. And so, <clears throat> we'll just, you know, put it all clear and simple, right? First, to, to become a Jew would have involved a practice of self-baptism. And, and so, when you, when you look at uh, what the apost- or what um, John the Baptist was doing out in the wilderness, that baptism for, for repentance, baptisms were a regular part of Jewish culture in the first century. And, and it was a, a, every time you had some sort of issue or you were unclean for some reason, then you would go take a ritual bath, a baptism essentially, and be made clean before God. So you had to practice a first baptism, if you will, to convert to Judaism then ladies, it's not terrible for you, but guys, you would have had to be circumcised if you were not. And most men who were Gentiles in this era were not circumcised. If you don't know what circumcision is, go to your wife and ask her. She'll tell you. Right? Or or go to a friend. Next time you're hanging out with the guys, hey, anybody know what circumcision is? Um, And everybody who knows will go, oh. Right? (laughs) So... Conversion process for guys includes circumcision. And so to be a Christian, they thought you had to follow Jewish law, you had to be baptized, you have to practice circumcision, and then and only then can the work of the Messiah on the cross and His resurrection apply to your life. Now, this was not a new issue in the church If we were to flip over to Acts chapter 15, what happens is some men came down from Judea to Antioch and began to uh, teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. So the church hasn't even spread. Paul hasn't even gone out on his first missionary journey yet. They're still in Antioch. And it comes down now to to Jews who were saved are starting to say, Gentiles who want to be saved, you have to be a good Jew before you can become a Christian. And Paul and Barnabas have issues with this. They think it's wrong. And so they go to Jerusalem and talk to those who had walked with Jesus, those in the established church. That is the oldest. And after discussion, this is the pronouncement that's made in Acts 15, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, in my, and the person who's speaking here is James, the, uh, the younger brother of Jesus, who is the head of the Jerusalem church at this point, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood, so the, the, the church in Jerusalem, they get together, and all of the leaders, they start discussing, should a Gentile have to be a good Jew before they can become a Christian? And the decision is made, no, we do not want to make it difficult for them, but in honor of the Jewish heritage of Christianity we will ask them to do a few things that are uh, respectful of that Jewish heritage. So don't eat things polluted by idols. Abstain from sexual immorality. Don't eat anything that's been strangled. And don't eat blood. Now, why would you not eat blood? If you remember back in the Old Testament, to eat blood was forbidden because the life of the animal is in the blood. And especially in a sacrifice, you were supposed to give the blood as the sacrifice. And and it was just critically important to understand the significance of blood in the Old Testament because it always looked to the shed blood of Jesus, His blood given for us. And then respecting the status of blood as a reminder of the power of the cross and the power of blood to forgive sin through Jesus Christ. So don't eat certain things and don't practice a couple of things. And then they write a letter, and it's to be sent out to all the churches. And the letter says this, For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, and from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And this is it. Those are the standards we ask you to live up to as Gentiles to respect and honor the Jewish heritage of the Christian faith. You will do well if you keep, these thing, or you keep yourselves from these things. And he doesn't even go on to explain any further. The letter ends with, farewell. This is the whole letter. This is all of the explanation that's needed. As a Gentile, you don't have to be a Jew to be saved. But as a saved Gentile... There is the request that you behave in ways that honor the Jewish heritage of your faith and make it clear that you respect the Jewish believers who are around you. So, that was the conclusion for that choice. Did I change? I feel the... Mike went weird it did okay what's happened is it echoey louder i feel like i need to whisper now all right i'm gonna whisper now you're gonna have to pay closer attention this is the pronouncement that's made this is the decision this is what it means to be a christian not to be a jew first but to be saved by the work of christ and respecting one another especially the jewish heritage of the Christian faith and so when Paul says these dogs that you need to watch out for who are trying to make you convert to Judaism before you come to Jesus that's why he's calling them dogs they're the ones that are actually unclean they're the ones that have wrong expectations they're the ones who are teaching untruth not only that but in teaching this untruth they are evil workers this is not some sort of benign thing this is not some sort of well you do your thing and we'll do our thing but this is evil that is distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ. These evil workers, these Jewish people, they thought they were, you know, doing something right to try and enforce the law, they're actually perpetrating evil. And why is it evil? Well, Paul gives us some explanation about why this is such a big deal. In Acts chapter 13, says this, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses." The problem with the law is it never saved. It was never able to bring salvation. In fact, the Apostle Paul teaches us that the law of the Old Testament, all it meant to do was to point us to Jesus. The truth is, even the Ten Commandments, nobody lives up to them perfectly. In fact, most of us probably don't even know all ten of the commandments. If you've ever watched Way of the Master stuff, um, Ray Comfort will go out, he'll interview people. Can you name the Ten Commandments? They can get one or two, sometimes. And then, can you name beers? You know, and they can do 15 different brands of beer, but they can't do but two or three tops of the Ten Commandments. And the problem is, is we can't even live up to those things. Because Jesus teaches us that actually the commandments that seem so easy on the surface don't murder, don't covet, don't commit adultery, that when we do them in our heart, it's the same as doing them physically. None of us can live up to the law. And so the law cannot save us. Here's the the next thing Paul says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit, the salvation through Christ, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the Old Testament law, and it only brings bondage and death. The law can only ever bring the recognition of sin and condemnation because it does not save. So when Paul sees Jewish believers trying to make Gentile believers obey the law. He said, the law does nothing for you. All it's ever done is make you a slave to sin and death. And he says this finally in Galatians 3.12, but the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. This statement, he's essentially saying, if you choose one thing in the law to live up to, you have submitted yourself to the whole of the law and nobody can do it. Stop trying to make rules your God. Instead, have faith in Christ Jesus. Trust in Him wholly for the work that is necessary. And then he talks about those who mutilate the flesh. and unnecessary circumcision as a means of salvation. That's what he's talking about, mutilating the flesh. It's unnecessary. It's no different than cutting off a good finger in hopes that you can please God. It's pointless. It makes no difference. In Galatians 5.12, Paul actually gets so angry at Jewish believers who are insisting that Gentiles follow the Jewish law in order to be saved, that he says of them, I wish those agitators would go so far as to cut it all off. He's saying cutting anything off is so pointless that you might as well cut it all off You idiots. He gets so upset over this. He's saying you've got a perfectly good body saved by the work of Christ. Stop trusting in physical acts in good works for salvation, but instead rest fully in the goodness and the good works of Jesus. Galatians 5, 2 and 3, Paul says this, Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. This statement of, if you think you can earn your salvation, then you need to go all the way and try and earn your salvation. Give up on Jesus, because it's not going to matter for you. Now, Why is this so significant in our life? Because in our life, our world is full of false teachers. And truth is, at any moment, any of us could become a false teacher any of us could slip off into our own desires. We can slip off into our own special view of Scripture and begin to teach falsehoods, which is why every one of you should be like the Berean church, and when you are taught something, you don't just go, amen, but you go back to your Bible and say, where is that? I want to see that for myself. Because there are teachers all over our world today who are telling you and other Christians lies. The truth is is that there aren't many nowadays who are telling us that we have to follow the law in order to be saved. But there are some actually. There are some groups of people who think that to be a Christian and to genuinely be saved, you have to celebrate all the feasts, you have to practice all of the high holy days. And Paul in Colossians tells us that that is a lie. But these false teachers, they are roaming the streets, not literally, but the streets of Facebook, and the streets of YouTube, and the streets of TikTok, and they are looking for people to prey upon. They are looking for people who will take their lies and just go, okay, if that's what it says, then I'll do it. People who will say, well, that makes sense to me, I guess it must be right, you see, the Christian faith isn't about things that make sense to you. It is about things that come from God's word that tell you what's true. Okay, and, and, and it's not, well, I agree with that. It doesn't matter if you agree. If it's true, it's true. It doesn't matter if it makes you feel good or not. If it's true and it comes from God's word, then we're supposed to be obeying it. But there are others out there who will try and lead you astray. They will try and tell you, you have to do this to be saved, or you can believe this lie and still be saved. And they're all doing it in the name of Christ. And that's what's mind-boggling to me, is there are so many false teachers out there who just need to give up on the label Christian and be honest. I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm making up my own religion. And I'll use a couple scriptures from the Bible to try and justify it, but I know it's not Christianity anymore. How do we know it's not Christianity anymore? Because so many of them denied the direct teachings of Jesus Christ. They declare themselves able to save themselves by being good people. Or they say, life will be perfect if you just believe like I do. Or they'll tell you lies like, you have to wear a certain thing or behave a certain way in order to be a Christian. We, we've all seen those places, been part of those places probably. Anybody grow up uh, wearing suit and tie to church because that's what good Christians do? There's a couple of us. Wow, many of you did not have that. Hallelujah. Um, I, I had to wear a tie as a teenager. What a terrible thing. I, we went to Liberty, went to school back then when Liberty was still a Christian school. No, it is today too, I'm just saying. But uh, we had to wear, I had to wear a tie to class and slacks and actually, Liberty's is a great school, I'll just say. But Shelly had to wear a dress or skirt. And, and, and what? Panty-hose. And pantyhose, which we all now know are straight from the pit of hell. <laughs> right? Okay, I don't know. I, I, I haven't worn pantyhose since eighth grade. So anyway, <laughs> I dressed up as a girl for Halloween twice. If it had been a third time, it might have been a lifestyle choice. But it was just those two years. But we have so many people telling us things that even things that sound good. Good Christians have hair above their ears. They've got the right haircut. They've got the right clothing. They say the right words. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. When when Scripture tells us, what does it take to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Confess with your mouth. And believe in your heart and you'll be saved. But there are false teachers doing things, trying to add to the scriptures and also trying to pervert the scriptures into something that they would like to hear. I, I struggle and I hesitate. I don't ever want to name a name of somebody I think is leading people astray and you'd be like, well, that's my favorite Bible teacher. But there are plenty out there and I, I beg you to be more discerning. Just because 42,000 people watch it on TikTok doesn't mean it's true. It's true. Just because they've got a really cool website doesn't mean that they are a truthful teacher. Just because you can turn on your television and flip to a channel and they're on TV, but we are not, doesn't mean they're right. Go back to God's Word. Take these false teachers and measure them. Take take what I teach and measure it against Scripture. Because I've made mistakes. And I've taught untruths because I thought I knew something and I said it with confidence and most of the people in the room went, amen. And then there's that one kid who went, that's not what the Bible says. Called me out on it, jerk. (laughs) But he was right. The biggest thing that that I, I want you to understand is that there are teachers out there who will heap unnecessary and unbiblical burdens upon you. And, and, and I want to be real careful because there's this thing of the things we do because we're saved, right? And so there's a long list of things we should do because we're saved that we should long to do with more passion and more vigor because we're saved. Praying and reading our Bible and attending church and raising our family well and being a faithful employer or employee. Those are things we should long to do because we're saved. But then there are things that we're told we have to do to be saved, On the other hand, and and some people can fall into this, wear a tie, keep your hair short enough or long enough. Read your Bible and pray. Good things, but if they're turned into ways to be saved instead of things we want to do because we're saved, they're unnecessary burdens. And and I'll, I'll say it clearly, I don't think you have to read your Bible for 20 minutes a day to be saved. But if you're genuinely saved, I think you should want to read your Bible more. You don't have to pray the right prayers to be saved. But if you are saved, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt you should want to pray more often and pray things that glorify God and and intercede for other believers. You don't have to come to church to be saved. You don't have to come to church to be saved. But if you're saved, you should want to come to church. Right? because this is the only place where you'll be around other believers who will encourage you and lift you up this is where we, we teach those truths that help you build your castle so you can live securely spiritually throughout the week you don't have to come to church to be saved but you should want to come to church when you're saved there's a difference then between false teachers who heap burdens on you in order to try and earn your salvation and those who teach you the truth and say because you're saved you should want to do this And we always want to be of the type of teacher who says, because you are saved, you want to do this. There are false teachers, though, who don't just add burdens, but they lie in in order to try and coax you to give more or do more. Give more money, plant more seeds, and you'll be blessed. Baloney. It's lies. Send more money to me so I can make my car payment on my 30th car. I mean, just, oh, it's infuriating. I'm like, Paul, watch out! Watch out, there's dogs everywhere. There's liars all around. Some of them well-intentioned, but many of them deceived and deeply flawed. Watch out. But here are the things they're going to teach us. They're going to teach us a different gospel. There's a gospel that's really popular in the United States that says, look to Jesus and he'll make you rich. And it's a lie. Look to Jesus and he'll always heal your body. It's not true. One of the greatest ironies in our time are faith healers who get sick. Right? It's like, how does that work? You believe and you you tell us, if we believe, we'll always be healthy and now you have cancer? I'm so sorry for you but you taught lies, and this is what will happen. There there are those who teach us a gospel that says, Jesus died on the cross so we can do whatever we want, be whoever we want, because he just loves us. It's a different gospel, it's a lie. There are teachers, false teachers who are out there who are gonna tell us that we have to do works of righteousness in order to be saved. We've gotta be the right kind of person before God will love us, and that's a lie. God loves you and then he gives you the power to be the person he longs for you to be. He gives you salvation through his son and then he gives you power by his spirit to look more like him. And so all of these false teachings are things we must stand against and we focus on the true teachings of scripture. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, for you are saved by grace, a gift through faith, or a trust in Jesus Christ. And this is not from yourselves. In other words, this salvation is not from anything that you can do or have done. It is instead you sitting back and resting fully in the hands of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that's it. That's how salvation comes. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. First clue that you have a false teacher is when they start boasting about anything that they've done or can do on their own. You are saved by grace through faith, and this is from your, this isn't from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. So then we start looking at a couple of things in our life, some, some works, some things we do. We don't get circumcised to be saved. We don't follow Jewish law to be saved, but instead because we are saved, we participate in a couple of outward practices. The first of those is baptism. If you have made a profession of faith and you've never been baptized, it's a good time to start planning for that. It's not just an act of getting wet and then everybody going, hey, which is actually pretty cool. It feels nice. Not when the water's cold. But but instead, it, it is your first act of obedience to declare your salvation. To say, I'm saved by grace through faith, and I know it. I can't earn this thing, and I am going to get baptized to prove that I'm a new person in Christ Jesus. Baptism is that first act of obedience, but then communion, the Lord's table together. They're both evidences and reminders of our salvation. We don't get baptized to be saved, we don't partake of the Lord's table together to be saved. But because we are saved, we think baptism is important. And participating in communion together as the family of God is critical. And so these two things, baptism and communion, are evidences of this salvation that's true and sure. Aren't you glad I didn't go into the other verses? I told you we could have been here till 4 o'clock if I had done verse 3 as well. I thought this was going to go faster. Here's what Paul says about circumcision. He says this, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, thank goodness, by putting off the body of flesh, yes, (laughs) in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. Paul essentially is saying baptism has replaced circumcision in the act of a profession of faith. You don't need to be circumcised physically because it is by faith that we're circumcised in the heart. And baptism represents that change. Jesus in John 53 John six fifty three through 57, says this about communion. Kind of looking forward to his last supper. He says this to them. Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Now, this is not just a picture of eating bread and juice, but it is fully partaking of who Jesus is, allowing him to be your King and your Lord And your savior, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him, just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Now people mistook what Jesus was teaching and thought he was talking about cannibalism. Since he never divided himself up and his disciples never cooked him and ate him, we know it was not about cannibalism. Instead, he was looking forward to communion. He was looking forward to what this symbolizes, a full participation in him being his completely. And every time we eat bread and we drink the juice, we remember what Jesus did and we declare to ourselves and everyone around us, I'm his and he is mine. Which brings us to Luke 22:19 through 20, when Jesus says this. He took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. You and I, We don't worry about the Jewish law anymore. We don't worry about circumcision or uncircumcision anymore. But we do want to participate fully in the life of Christ. And that begins with baptism and it continues with a regular partaking of the Lord's Supper together. And so while we don't look at all these other rules and laws and say we have to follow them, what we do understand is that when we fully participate in Christ, when we celebrate what He's done for us, we can rejoice, we can have a bulwark, a safety, a castle to reside in, which is Christ Jesus Himself, and we can avoid these false teachers that we're warned against because we are focusing in on Christ Jesus and Him alone. So I know it, it's, it's gotten later. Time has passed more than I meant. Sometimes uh, I, I wonder how it is such a few number of slides turn into such a long sermon. And you might wonder that as well. And thank you for your patience and your grace. I hope you learn. I hope it stretches you. I hope you're convicted. Today, we can rejoice. We don't have to do anything other than believe in order to be saved. And for all who have believed, we have the privilege of celebrating the work of Jesus on the cross whenever we gather together and partake of the Lord's table. So today, I'm going to invite everyone who is a, has made a profession of faith and uh, has declared Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior to consider coming forward and receiving the bread and the cup and then finding a corner or returning to your seat and just taking a couple of moments and praying and contemplating the work of Christ on your behalf, spending a moment in rejoicing and thankfulness, and then when you are ready, on your own time, go ahead and partake of the bread and the cup. If you've got a family here with you today and you want to have your children join in with you or your spouse join with you and pray together and talk together, then do that. If you see a friend across the way and you want to kneel with them and pray with them and for them, then partake together like that. But today, as we round out our service, as we conclude our time together, I just want to invite everyone who will, who's made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, to come receive the bread and take the cup, find a spot, and celebrate the work of Jesus on your behalf. But first, let's bless. The elements, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the work that you've done for us. We thank you that we don't have to do special things. We don't have to follow certain rules in order to be saved. We don't have to have physical changes or participate in any events or celebrations in order to be saved. But it is only you that we need for salvation. We pray that today, as we experience your grace by faith, that we would celebrate the bread and the cup, that we would realize it was by your body that you took the punishment for our sins, and by your blood that you made us clean and washed us from guilt, and that it is only in you we can find salvation. We do not need to do these things in order to be saved, but because we're saved, we joyfully participate in this communion meal. Thank you for this bread and this cup, and may we truly experience you through it. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So if you'd like to come to the center aisle, kind of work your way around, take your elements and receive them, and then partake of them in your own time, in your own way, please do so. If you're not comfortable today, that's fine. Know that this is not some sort of ritual, remember, in which we earn salvation. It is simply a practice in which we celebrate it. So please come and receive the elements as you would like today. Once you're ready, partake of the elements on your own time. Because it's a little late, if you need to go ahead and step out, if your family's ready to head out, please do remember our studies the rest of the week we've got a meeting for VBS right after service downstairs but our worship team has got one more song so if you'd like to stay and participate in that song please do if you need to head out please feel free may you know the blessing of God's presence this whole week may you celebrate the work that's already been done in you watch out for the false teachers and undergird and build your life with the truth of biblical teaching and the the, the, the awesome, awesome realization that you are saved by grace through faith, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. May you believe. So dismissed if you need to. Stand and sing if you want to. We're going to spend our next few minutes just rejoicing in Christ.
1: Okay, church, we're going to give you a chance to rejoice on your way out. I want you to hear these words that we're going to sing in the bridge. you turn mourning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You turn graves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. And you turn seas into highways. And he's the only one who can. So please sing this with us. the world to rejoice this way.